0: Well, before we totally get into the sermon, I do want to say my wife and I, we had a breakthrough this week with Brandon. He looked at us yesterday and he said, you know what, Daddy? Jesus is more powerful than a ninja. (laughs) So we're very excited that he's figured that out, that we think that's a good breakthrough because, yeah, yeah, so. Well, we're going to jump right into the passage this morning. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll go back through it. But we're, going to, we're starting out in Ruth 2.17 this morning. Says, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought, uh, brought out and gave her what she, what she had left over, After she had eaten enough, her mother in law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother in law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter in law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. She added, this, "'This man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers.' Then Ruth of Moabitess said, "'He even said to me, "'Stay with my workers "'until they finish harvesting all the grain.' Naomi said to, her, to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, "'It will be good for you, my daughter, "'to go with his girls, "'because in someone else's field you might be harmed.' So Ruth stayed close to her servant girls of Boaz "'to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished.' And she lived with her mother-in-law. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, who's, with whose servant girls you've been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight, he will be, at the winnow, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now this is one of those historical stories that kind of draw you into to the characters of the story. I don't know about you, but I kind of get drawn in. If you haven't done that, haven't done this yet, read the whole story through. Uh, in fact, uh, throughout the series, you can read it multiple times, and God will show you at different parts, different things as you read the story. It's like when when reads, we read stuff to our son, we read it multiple times. He likes that repetition of things, but he picks up different things at different times. Uh, we introduced him to uh, Shel Silverstein this last week, and, and different poems by him and stuff, and he's all excited about it. So uh, we're having a good time with that, you know, talking about spaghetti and a dog with two tales and all this, and he wants us to read it over and over again, okay? We can do the same principles with the Word of God and understand different parts of them as we go along. So the short story, you know, it's very short, but it draws you into their lives. And we start to really understand their struggles as they go along, don't we? I mean, we kind of put ourselves in the middle. We all understand struggles, you know. So we wish we all understood blessings all the time, right? But we really understand struggles. So we put ourselves in in the story and how they deal with it, their strength as they move forward and as they move on, their kindness in the midst of, of tough situations. A Hebrew word for this type of kindness, we've already talked about it, it's the word has said. And, and, you know, it teaches us about loyalty and perseverance, about love. And with Ruth, her bold faith in Yahweh, her bold faith in her new God that was blessing her beyond belief. Uh, if we didn't uh, didn't know the, where the story was heading we you know we would ask who are these people you know the, the, this is different from from the world where when you know when i read about ruth and naomi and, and boaz i'm witnessing great people and great people of the bible on one hand they're they're ordinary people like you and i they're just like you and i they have struggles they have difficulties but on the other hand, uh, other hand, they're extraordinary in their actions, making wise choices in their lives. And, and a lot of our lives, you know, boils down to, to the choices we make, doesn't it? I mean, don't we wish we could all go back and go, well, if I hadn't made that choice or if I would have made this choice or if I would have done this. But unfortunately, life doesn't work that way, does it? We can't go back and, and, and redo those things. But what we can do is from this moment forward, start making better choices, start making wiser choices about direction, about attitude, about actions, uh, about so many different things along in, or in our lives. Uh, you know, we struggle along the way, but we continue to make wise choices. So now our story moves away from the harvest field. And, and she's brought home 30 pounds worth of, of barley. And the Lord has just blessed her with, with about a month's worth of food. And, and, you know, Naomi's like, man, just go out there and live with those, those girls that that walk behind the, uh, you know, that walk behind and, and pick up all the sheaves and all that kind of stuff and, and keep getting that barley because they got a long, okay, this is great. One month's worth of food, but she's got to, I mean, they got to live for the whole year, Right. So, you know, mom is like, hey, let's just, we, we'll build a storeroom if we have to. I mean, keep going out there. You're being blessed. But, but it moves away from the, the harvest field and onto the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor is, a, is an ancient thing, and it's still around in some countries today. But here in America, we have machines that literally harvest and thresh at the same time. They're called Combines. Have you ever seen one in a field when it's doing a wheat harvest? It's got these big rotary things on the front of it. I mean, I, well, I could mean, I, I, I go into it, but, but it, well, I mean, I used, to, I used to go every summer up to Oklahoma to my grandfather's uh, farm and, and, and work with him on the farm and, and set in the tractor and the combines and, and they would just, you know, it, it just rotary and it cuts it and it throws it in the back and it, it threshes it and they have these trucks that follow right along and, and the trucks, uh, you know, they have this big thing that shoots all the grain right into the trucks. And ironically, those trucks would drive 800 miles down to where I lived in Houston and drop off the grain at the elevator that my dad worked at, his only job off the farm. Um, so it's, it's pretty amazing. But, you know, my, my grandfather, he would pretend, every corner, he would pretend like he was falling asleep. And I had to figure out how to turn the machine. You know what I'm saying? When you're 9, 10 years old and as you get older, you know, these things are huge machines. But back then, the grain was, was really um, threshed on what's called a threshing floor. And the floor would be a high spot on a hill where the wind would come blowing through really good. And then we'd take the stocks, and they would just beat them on the ground for a while. Uh, and then they would, they'd take these pitchforks or these things, and, and, and they would stick it in you know, underneath the pile, and they would throw it up in the air. And as the wind blew, it would take all the light stuff, and it would blow it away, and all the heavy stuff would come back down and hit the ground. And this was, was, was uh, you, you know separating the wheat from the chaff, as they call it, a, as we read in the New Testament, um, where the Lord separates the people, the wheat from the chaff, those who truly believe and those who don't. The threshing floor really shows up in some amazing places in the Bible. Solomon's temple was built on a threshing floor. Did you realize that? The temple is actually built on a threshing floor, on a high place. Threshing floor plays, plays a role in, in the lives of special people, and we'll see that today. Most of chapter 2, is it's late March, early April, right now, is played out in these fields. Every year the harvest started at the Passover festival, and the Passover is all about redemption. And God redeemed His people out of, out of slavery, out of Egypt, and, and this is where we find the story of Ruth happening. It's interesting how God's mind works. The Israelites reading the story, and they would have picked up on the fact that this would have, you know, happened right after the, right after Passover, right after the redemption of his people. And God is being very purposeful here. Here's a beautiful barley harvest. And around 4 p.m. every day, they would, the wind would pick up and I don't know if you've ever stood out in a, uh, in a wheat field. If you, uh, you know, growing up, we, you know, nowadays you get arrested if you go out in the fields, right? You know, I mean, they don't like that. But growing up on the, you know, on the farm every now and then during the summers, you go out to the wheat fields and stuff, and, and you could just sit there, and the wind picks up, and you could imagine, it sounds like you're at the ocean because of all the, the stalks you know, and the head just hitting against each other at the wind blowing. It, it sounds like the waves, and this is the end of the day. And she would have taken Ruth would have taken all of her stuff, and as the day went on, her pile got higher and higher and higher. And at the end of the day, she would have went to the, uh, the threshing floor. Usually, a gleaner would, would glean along the way. I don't know. Uh, they would, uh, late in the evenings is not a place to be for, for ladies out on the field. Do you know what I'm saying? So gleaning takes part in the late afternoon, late evening. So so usually the gleaners, as they go along the edges of the field, they would kind of glean along the way. They'd take the stock and run their hand through it and all that. But she had so much she couldn't. So here she's at the threshing floor. And Ruth, on her first day, gets permission to to glean. She gets permission to be there. And unpaid worker is giving full access to the field like a paid worker, and here Boaz gives instructions to her workers. Hey, every so often, just just throw some stocks over your shoulder. Let her pick them up. Let her think that that she's doing a lot a of, lot of you know uh, a, a lot of good work here. Accidentally leave some back for her, you know. And this is very unusual. This is showing great kindness to her. So Ruth is gathering all her stalks into sheaves and she finds a place to, to put them so she doesn't get them mixed up with, with the sheaves that are being bundled up for, for, for the harvest and the harvesters. So, so at the end of the day, she, she takes them to the threshing floor and she beat out what she had. Now this is, a, like I said, it's an unusual time because the gleaners are usually gone. They don't want to stay too late because of safety issues. But for Ruth... It was too much. She would have to do the threshing later. So Ruth heads off to the threshing floor. And it's either a community threshing floor. Some farms actually had their own threshing floors. But most likely, um, uh, she would have gone to the community threshing floor. And that evening, she gets home. And she is tuckered out. I mean, she's worked hard. Been working all day. And she carries about 30 pounds of grain in to, through the door to, to the home. I mean, this is an incredible amount, and we've already talked a lot about about the, the amount, but even for a single person to accomplish, what's even more amazing than this is the average worker for their pay received about one to two pounds of grain a day. That was average, enough to be able to feed his family for the night, Usually, usually a large family. You know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, you know, because families back then they had large families. There's not this one child or two child. It's usually ten or twelve or, or more children, because you needed slaves. I mean, you needed people to help out in the fields and, and get stuff down. So, you, so uh, get stuff done. So you can see how unusual this is. A gleaner would get much less than that. So Naomi sees his haul. I mean, she sees his grain being dragged in the house, and her, you know, she turns to her daughter uh, daughter and all the Moabites. Now, before it, I started thinking about this, Moabites. That's a funny word, isn't it? You re, I mean, you read through the Bible, and you come across these different, I mean, they're from Moab. So, so what do you call a man from Moab? You call him a Moabite, right? So what do you call a woman from Moab? Moabitess, right? So what do you call a dog from Moab? A Moabiter. I I thought that was pretty... Okay, I know it's corny, but still, awful, awful. So I found a picture of an ancient Moabite dog, and I thought I'd put one up so you guys could could see it. So this is the ferocious Moabiter. I know, I just had to go... So you see where my mind goes when I'm studying the Word of God, you know? I mean, crazy, right? So anyway, so Naomi, she turns to her her daughter-in-law and says... Wait a second, where did you get all of this? Who has blessed you this much? I mean, you can imagine the, the, the excitement. She's like, may the Lord just bless him. This is an amazing turn of events for Naomi, isn't it? I mean, Naomi, I mean, she's, she's kind of been in depression. She had become bitter. She didn't know how she was really going to make it through. She was responsible for this daughter-in-law, contractually responsible, okay? She had to take care of her. She came back home and, as a failure in many people's eyes, uh, you know, probably had to beg for their first meal to be able to eat. And she's like, I'm not the pleasant one. I'm not Naomi, because that's what Naomi means. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. And she went with that bitterness. I mean, she just, she took it. I mean, but with this blessing, we're going to start to see Naomi, her attitude start to change over time. And Naomi, the pleasant one, is starting to come back. Blessings are flowing from her mouth instead of bitterness. uh, And the bitterness is starting to disappear. Naomi was gone, but now she's starting to reappear. This is really cool with this blessing. Something changes in her when she sees this 30 pounds of grain. It's an interesting thing I want to point out here. God is into changing names. I don't know if you've noticed that as you you read the Word of God. I mean, you know, Genesis 17, God approaches Abram, and it means father. Yet he couldn't have any kids. He didn't have any kids, and he was getting really old. And, you know, he changes it to Abraham, father of many. And that's our founding father, if you want to call it that, uh, of the Christian faith, if you want to say it that way. But Abram's wife, her name was Sarai which means princess. She meets God, and God changes it to Sarah, which means mother of nations. Hmm. Later, Jacob the deceiver meets Christ. See, you know, wrestles with the angel, and the angel changes his name to Israel, which means my prince. Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. And here we see a major transformation from Mara back into Naomi, her true self. One pile of grain, and it changes everything for her. This is why one act of kindness can be so important. One act of of helping someone out. One act of respect. One act of favor. One act of increasing your corners, as we talked about last week. It can change lives. An act of grace can change lives. Hmm. One bag of grain, one kind word, one gift card, one hug, one smile, a listening ear, an act of grace. We should be looking out in our Christian lives for a time and a place that God wants us to show an act of kindness in His name to someone else then you get to become the Boaz in someone's life. That's how important our Christian walk is. In fact, Galatians 6 says we should bear one another's burdens. We shouldn't have to walk on this earth not having someone to help us with the burdens that we have. Well, now let's get back to the story. She, she says, where did you glean today? Naomi did. And she, uh, where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth, her mother-in-law, um, told her about the, the one whose place she had been working. The, man I, uh, uh, the name of the man I was working with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter in law He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. And she's saying, you're the living and I'm the dead. I mean, my family, uh, we were dead pretty much. He's showing an act of kindness here. She added, this man is a close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemer. He is a family redeemer. Is a legal relationship that he has with the family. God is telling them about the law. Uh, God has told the, the Israelites uh, uh, how to handle certain things, uh, a redemption of, of property and other different things. In fact, if we go to, um, uh, well, Ruth 2, uh, I have down the wrong, um, it's Leviticus 25. I have the wrong title on there. It's Leviticus 25, 23. It says, uh, he's talking about the property of redemption and different things. He says the land must not be sold permanently. So if you own a piece of land, it should never be sold permanently because the land is mine and you were but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country you are to hold uh, you, that you hold as a possession you must provide for the redemption of the land if one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property the near, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold if however a man has no one to redeem it for him but he himself prospers uh, prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it he is to determine the value of the, for the year since he sold it, and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. He can then go back to his own property, but if he does not acquire the means to repay him, what he sold will remain in possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee, and then he can go back to the property. So the law is about family property remaining in the family. If a person finds himself in difficulty and he had to sell the, the land, then a relative, a redeemer, is to redeem him from the predicament. That means the relative should come in, and the relative has the means. They should go and purchase the land back and give it back to the family member. And then he could hold on to that land until, until the man got back onto his feet. And then there's the year of Jubilee. It's called every 50 years. All debts were to be forgiven within Israel. Every debt was to be forgiven within in that 50 year period. Now, there's another layer of understanding here. We've already talked about Boaz being a, a type of, of Christ figure. And, and the way we read the story, it starts to come out because Boaz, the Redeemer, takes us straight to who? Christ, the Redeemer. The power of redemption is, is huge. We start to see the fuller sense of, of the text. And even though the writer didn't know what he was writing, you know, as the writer's writing out the story and the history, the Holy Spirit directed the author to write it this way. And we get to not only see the first meaning, but the second meaning here. And the same thing happens in Isaiah 7 when, you know, when we, we read, For unto us a child is born. You know, the famous passage. We, every Christmas we bring it out, don't we? Uh, why don't we do it in July? I don't know. But we do it every Christmas. And we start to see the, the, the first meaning and, and then the second meaning. And this is one of those passages here. The Old Testament is not old in the sense of not needing it. The New Testament breathes life into the Old Testament. And we start to see God's plan from the beginning when we put them both together. For Christ is our kinsman redeemer. Jesus, the redeemer. The redeemer of our sinful lives. We have a debt that we cannot pay. Would you all agree to that? Our sin. I, there's nothing I can do to make up for my sin in my life. That, that, that would get me in front of a holy God, a God who is 100% pure, that has never sinned. He's full of holiness. Sin cannot be in His presence. There's nothing I can do to get there on my own. I need somebody to pay for that, a Redeemer, and that is Christ, the Redeemer. He took care of it for us. He is the one that can redeem us. He is the one that can pay our debt now, back to the story, our two heroes of this book figure out that God's favor is with them. Israel's barley season, late March to early May, late April, right in, about six weeks, and would blend right into to, uh, to wheat season for another six weeks. So you would have 12 weeks of this intense harvest time. Now, when I was younger, I was going to say young, but younger, and in college, I worked out at my dad's grain elevator. I call it my dad's grain elevator because he's always worked out there. He started pushing a broom, first job off the dill, and he ended up working, you know, executive vice president there in the office and all that kind of stuff. So I always called it his elevator, even though it wasn't his. But uh, you know, harvest season would hit when I would work out there during the sur- uh, s- uh, summer, and it would hit for wheat and mitle harvest right in the middle of that. So I would literally work twelve hours a day, twelve hour shifts for three months. 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., and then two weeks later, I would go 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. It totally screwed with our, you know, I mean, think about that. Having to switch every two weeks, working nights to days. I mean, it really messed you up, in which I don't understand this. I mean, I was in a daze during this time, always switching, uh, switching the sleeping patterns, and this is when I met Lisa. And I would take, you know, I would get up in the middle of my night, you know, at 11 a.m., 11 and I would drive to NASA, and then I would take her out to lunch. And then I would, you know, take her back to, to her job, and then I would drive home and I would sleep for a few more hours, and then I'd get up and go to work. And she couldn't figure out whether I liked her or not. I, I just don't understand that, and that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought I'd mention that, you know. But harvest season is a time of chaos, a time of rushing around. A time of working hard. And this is what exactly Boaz and Ruth are doing. Day in and day out, three straight months, except for the Sabbath, they would take off the Sunday. All under the care and the protection of Boaz, the Redeemer. And Toward the end of the process, Naomi says to her in chapter 3, One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try and to find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have, been, you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Now, Naomi, as the one who is in charge of Ruth, in that society, that's the way it worked. Ruth's husband died, which was Naomi's son. She was in charge of finding her another husband. That's the rules. That was the law. That's the way it worked back then. And, you know, young men and young ladies nowadays are saying, praise the Lord. It doesn't work that way, right? For, okay, no response. Okay, well, anyway, so it was that way that back then. So Naomi's heart is, is for Ruth, and she loves seeing Ruth provided for and protected, uh, not just during this harvest time, but she's thinking beyond that for her entire life. So let's talk about the threshing floor a little more. Every community had a threshing floor. Uh, some would even have two or three floors, and they're located, like I said, in key positions where the wind would blow uh, blow out uh, blow really hard. It's usually right outside the village, on a on top of a hill. A platform would be built if there wasn't rock, or if there was a big piece of rock up there, they would kind of kind of flatten it down if they could, and that's where they would do this. Uh, they would take flat stones and, in fact, embed them into the ground and kind of make a patio, uh, if you will. But it was used by the entire community. For barley and then wheat and then milo and then other crops. The landowners would all gather and they would kind of section out. This is my section or this is my time that I'm up here. And, and they would beat the grain of stocks to the, you know, on the floor like Ruth did. And you could, you, know, you, you could even spread them all out all over the place. And then you could have an ox come with this big log and and draw you know drag it over the top of them uh, you know and walk back and forth. It's called treading the uh, treading the wheat. And if you ever read that, you can uh, you can hear that. So, so or you can recall this up if you ever hear that in the Bible, the word treading. So the ox would would pull the log across and and so forth. And we see this in Deuteronomy twenty five four, and it says do not muzzle an ox as it's, while it's treading out the grain. And this is where that verse comes from. Basically, you know, you don't muzzle the ox. You don't keep the ox from, from at least eating. He's the one doing all the work, right, as you sit there. And some of these logs, would they would even put some type of, you know, hard things in them. And so they would roll and really hit hard and different things. Uh, but after the treading process, after that part, it's not over. You need to winnow it. And the idea is the worker would come with a shovel or pitchfork, like I said earlier, and he would scoop everything up and throw it up in the air as high as he could. And the wind would carry off the chaff and and the heavier grain would drop to the ground. I mean, the chaff is, is literally useless. You can't cook with it. In fact, if, if chaff is Left in the grain, it kind of runs even the mill and stuff because it's a fibrous thing and and it's hard to chew and it kind of runs the whole thing, um, and it's the only thing it's used for is really animal feed. Uh, it has no nutritional value. All it does is kind of bulk up the cattle, you know, kind of like what. Uh, uh, well, okay, well I won't go there. So. But the wind would carry the, the chaff away. Now when I worked at the grain elevator, one of my jobs is for about six hours a day, I would sweep, if you could imagine that, six hours sweeping, because as the grain goes through the elevator, all the chaff that didn't get taken out in the, in the, in the process with the combines would literally pile up in certain places around the elevator. And that chaff actually, along with the grain dust, is explosive, If you ever live around a grain elevator and you hear about it, you know, it's blowing its top, that's one of the things that the the term came from, okay? Because literally, grain elevator, ever so often static electricity. Because of all the chaff field, if, if they haven't kept the elevator clean, it literally will blow the top off of the, of the elevator where the leg uh, deals with all the grain and stuff. So, I mean, you had to keep all that away. So these guys, they would do it with the wind and, and, and so forth. So the wind would carry away the straw and the breeze would pick up in the evening time. The grain is collected and it's not clean grain. They would put it in pots or, and pots or clay pots or they would even build these huge storage pits and they would put tops over to keep the rain out and they would collect it for later so today with our modern equipment we do this uh, in the world but in, in parts of the world they still do it just like they used to back then because think of places like Afghanistan or Iraq, Iran, you know, and other, you know, even Libya now and, and stuff. Can you just, you know, start up a tractor salesman place anywhere you want? No. How are you going to get them there? I mean, you know what I'm saying. There's some countries that still do this type of stuff today. But the community would gather around. So it's almost like a you know, community celebration. The wind picks up and the celebration begins. It's like the Holy Spirit cleansing us. So you kind of get the picture of the the threshing floor, the the wind coming through, taking away the stuff that doesn't need to be there. It's the Holy Spirit, you know, kind of cleansing us. And the, uh, the Bible actually borrows the images and ideas and uses it in a different way. It uses us to, you know, to warn us about our ways, to separate the good ways and the bad ways out of our life. It uses it to talk about the pounding process of of, of getting the chaff away from the wheat and and the treading, the ox. Imagine, I mean, have any of you ever felt like a log was being dragged over you? You know, that's what we're talking about here. To separate the good and the bad, the the force being used. The prophets use this to talk about God's discipline. The prophet Isaiah here in Isaiah 21 uses it concerning God's people. He said, oh, my people crushed on the threshing floor." I tell you what I've, what I've heard from the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel. This passage refers to Israel being threshed, uh, uh, being kind of hit upon. Now, couldn't you imagine being thrown up in the air and then landing pretty hard? You know, some of our lives, we felt like that. It's a picture I think we need to understand. The threshing floor may be a time of celebration, but it's also the time of the Lord getting our attention. Sometimes when, you know, we, we land hard on something, the Lord's trying to get our attention. We're feeling like we're being thread upon. The Lord is trying to separate us from the bad stuff in our life, the negative things in our life. It can be a painful process, and it can even, uh, you know, leave the... Uh, well, the painful process can leave the good and get rid of the bad. There are parts of us that are in us that are not good. And the not good stuff in our life kind of gets entangled in all the good stuff, right? When something really is, it shouldn't be there, it messes with our whole life, and it can mess with the, the great stuff that's in our life, and the Lord brings us to the threshing floor. And there's footprints on our back to prove it, to prove the threshing process. And we say stuff to the Lord like, I wasn't supposed to lose my job. My life wasn't supposed to turn out this way. I never planned for this to happen. Lord, whatever happened here? And we find ourselves on the threshing floor. Threshing floor of losing someone. The threshing floor of divorce. Divorce. Or not being able to have a child or, or the threshing floor of disappointment. Life just doesn't really feel that good. Or the threshing floor at, at work because the boss doesn't notice the good work that you do. And you've been working your tail off and it seems like, they, you know, you're, like you're just invisible to them. The threshing floor of illness. You're Either your illness or, or illness within the, the family, the threshing floor of, of just getting ahead and then something happens and it, it seems like it puts you right back to, to square one or even into negative squares. Or maybe even the crazy threshing floor of parenting. The threshing floor of uncertainty. uncertainty. You know, politics. Our country, man, the... <laughs> I mean, this all plays out in our lives, and it doesn't always feel so good. Feel like we're getting kind of stomped on. We find ourselves laid out on the cold stone of the floor, and we're thinking, what, what did I do to deserve this? And then all of a sudden, you're tossed up in the air, and the wind is blowing, and, and things are flying around, and you land back on the cold stone again. And you're wondering, what in the world is going on? And then a spike comes over you, and you're like, ouch, God starts being more efficient. You know, the Lord was threshed on a windy hill outside of a city, on a hill called Calvary. The ultimate threshing floor. Jesus, the Redeemer, identifies with the reality that we understand when we find ourselves on the threshing floor. We don't serve this disconnected god that's just kind of out there. He understands what we go through. He went through it. He relates to us on a daily basis. Boaz didn't say, "Hey, if your mother hadn't left Bethlehem, you probably, you know, you would still be a, you, you would still be in Moab. You wouldn't be a foreigner here in our land." No, he offered help. He relates to what we go through on a daily basis, just as Christ offers help in our situations. We may even ask why. I mean, the book of Job is all about the question why, isn't it? Have you ever read the book of Job or attempted to? Even Job's friends show up and they tell him why all these things are happening to him well, you must have sinned here, you know, or you must have did this, or you must have did that. And and Job is like, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm innocent with those things. I mean, yes, I have sinned in my life, but no, I haven't done this, that, and that to deserve this type of punishment. I've followed God. And at the end of the book, God shows up and presents himself to Job. And what's interesting is if you read the end of the book of Job, he still doesn't get the question answered of why. Now, if we read the beginning of the book of Job, we understand why. It's because God allowed Satan to go after Job, and he said, look at my, look at my son Job, he stays strong. And Satan goes, really, really, okay, he's going to stay strong. Okay, let me after him. And God says, okay. We understand why Job never gets that answer. He never gets that answer. But we know that Job stayed strong. I do know this. Special people. Those who do great things for God do so because they've been through the threshing process. And God has taken away the chaff of their life and left the good stuff. This is why Ruth and Naomi are special people. They've been threshed, and instead of giving up, they made it through the process. Statistics tell me that 100 people out of 100 great people in the Bible, has spent time on the threshing floor. All you have to do is read the Word of God and you see it. The process of maturing as a Christian comes from the threshing floor and the threshing process. But there's more to it than just the threshing floor. It's not just making it out. It's when you make it off the floor, you run toward God and not away from God. See, that's part of our problem. When some tough times come through our life, we beg God, help me, help me, be in the middle of the situation, and then God does something in the middle of the situation. As soon as we get out of that situation, what do we do? We run back to our old life. We run back to the, the way we used to be, and we don't stay with God. We don't run toward God. We need to run toward the Redeemer of our life, because the Redeemer is at the threshing floor. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But, man, we need to learn how to run toward God. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people, they get out of a tough situation, and they beg for God in the middle of the situation, and as soon as uh, they're out, they just go back to their normal life. Nothing changes. And then they wonder why the next time the same thing happens. Or they wonder why they're back on the threshing floor. And it's like, well, God, God's going, well, I, I tried to be nice and thresh you nicely and it didn't work. So, so now, now I need to get your attention in another way. I need to get your, all I'm trying to do is get your attention because I want you to follow me and my ways. I tell you, one way to, start, uh, to stay off the threshing floor is follow God's ways. But sometimes... God is like, see my servant? Satan goes, yeah, let me at him. He goes, okay. And we go through the threshing process and we don't even know why. But we need to stay true to our Savior, our kinsman redeemer, which is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. And <sighs> Lord, I thank you for the Threshing process it's not something that we look forward to going through it's not something that we want to go through it's not something that we even expect but through that process you mature us and i pray that when we go through difficult situations sometimes those situations are from satan sometimes they are from our own making but when we go through them lord that we look to you as our redeemer We look to you as our Savior. We look to you as the one who will get us through it. And then once we're through, I pray that we continue to go toward you. I pray for those that feel like they just want to give up in the middle of the threshing process, that you sustain them, that you give them some extra barley, that you give them favor in their lives to get them through the process. And I pray that they recognize that you are the one that gives us this. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you and may He find favor on you. May He look to you to give favor. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.